A part of our text this morning reads, Which of them will love him most? It's a question. And it's a question that is an outgrowth of a story Jesus told to Simon the Pharisee. This particular Simon had invited Jesus to dinner. Why? We're not told. But, as you read the story, and as you read between the lines, we're forced to the conclusion that his motive was something other than friendliness. I think Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner because he was motivated by curiosity. You see, arresting, persistent rumors had blown about the country with regard to Jesus. There were some that were saying he was possessed of a power beyond the human. There were some that were sure he was a prophet. Some were sure that he was the greatest even of the prophets. But Simon, Simon was not at all convinced of the truthfulness of these amazing rumors. But they did make him curious. So, he was open-minded enough that he had a desire to have a look at Jesus for himself. And so to have a closer look at this Jesus, he invited him to dinner. And while the dinner was in progress, there was something that took place that made it possible for watchful Simon to reach a very definite conviction with regard to his guest. A woman came to the dinner, uninvited. A woman of a notoriously bad character, whose reputation was of the very worst of reputations, and she appeared there that night. And this woman, this woman of poor reputation approached Jesus. And she took liberties with Him that seemed to Simon and the other guests to be altogether shocking. Because you see, she had brought with her part of the spoils and instruments of her sinful adornment, if you will, to devote it to the service of Jesus. This woman had come for the purpose of anointing the feet of Jesus with perfume. But, before she can open her cruise and accomplish her purpose of anointing His feet with perfume, her heart opens. And when her heart opens, hot tears flow down her cheeks and onto the feet of the Lord, inflicting upon Him an indignity when she meant to do Him an honor. And she has nothing at hand, no towel to repair the fault and the damage that she's done. She would not resort or even venture to take her poor garment that she was wearing. But with a touch, she reaches up and she loosens her long hair. 
and with ingenuity and self-abasement. A self-abasement born of love. She uses her hair for a towel. And then, after that, she gathers her confidence. And she carries it much further than she meant. She ventures to lay her sinful lips on the feet of Jesus. As if asking for pardon for the tears that would come. If you read the Bible, you read the story of Christ, those are the only lips except those of the traitor Judas that are recorded as ever having touched my Lord. And it was then, only then, that this woman began to pour upon Jesus her only wealth. Her only wealth. Simon the Pharisee is shocked. Simon the Pharisee is scandalized. What will he say? Does he have a heart? He is scandalized because such a thing is happening at his respectable table. Now as for us, sitting in the comfort of the 21st century, reading the story, it's pretty easy for us to point a finger at Simon, isn't it? It's pretty easy for us to shake our finger in Simon's face and have scorn for him. But you know what? If we're honest, I'm not so sure that we would have carried things off much better than Simon did if we were in a similar situation. It's disgraceful. Because He's looking upon it. It's taking place in His home. And Jesus is obviously welcoming the attention of this woman of the gutter. He's doing so either knowing her for what she is or in total ignorance of the real character of this woman. Simon begins to have doubts. He has a doubt about whether a man who would tolerate these kind of familiarities from such a person as this woman of the street could be a prophet. And if he were, could he even be a good man? You see, here's the thing. Simon's point of view is this. Goodness shows itself good by keeping utterly aloof from those who are not good. Simon's righteousness is the kind of righteousness that gathers its own robes about him and shoves the poor sinner back to the filth where they came from. If Jesus is allowing her to touch Him because He doesn't know what kind of woman she is. And Simon's willing to take the charitable view and credit the conduct of Jesus to ignorance. He's still no prophet. Because everyone knows one sure mark of the prophet 
is the ability to read a person's character. And so therefore, account for the conduct of his guest Jesus as he may. Simon is driven to the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is not a prophet. Ah. But Jesus knows what's going on in Simon's mind. And Jesus shows Simon that if he cannot read the character of the woman, he is at least able to read the character of his host. He shows him if he does not know the woman for what she is, Jesus knows Simon for what he is. So Jesus says in Luke chapter 7 and verse 40, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him the most? Jesus said, Simon, I've got something I want to say to you. And then he closes with a question. He says, Simon, which one's going to love him the most? Why does Jesus ask that question? These two debtors, one owes 500 pence, one owes 50 pence. They can't pay it. And their creditor says, I forgive the debt. Tell me, Simon, which one loves him the most? Jesus asked that question because it's a fundamental question. And Jesus never beats around the bush. Jesus goes right to the heart of things. Love is the supreme essential. Which one's going to love Him the most? Love, are you listening? Love is the test of the vitality and genuineness of our Christianity. Love marks the difference in a spiritual giant and a spiritual dwarf. Love is the difference between moral victory and moral failure. Love is the difference in life and death. And that fact ought to be obvious to even the most casual reader of the New Testament. You remember there was an occasion Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is thou shalt love. And the second is likened unto it is this, Thou shalt love. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The greatest commandment, thou shalt love. The second, thou shalt love, Jesus said. And it was then that He pointed out the mark of the true disciple by this. By this shall all men know you are my disciples if you have love one toward another. John 13, verse 35. Love is so important that nothing really arrives 
that is not motivated by it. Paul makes it so plain in the first Corinthian letter, chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Eloquence has no music. Eloquence has no music. And knowledge is a sheer futility without love. Faith. Faith that's strong enough and mighty enough to make, the, make toys out of the mountains. Even to the point of laying down your life. All fails. Except at the hands of love. The greatest of treasures are pitifully inadequate without love. And yet, even the very smallest of things take on immeasurable value with the transforming power of love. The two mites that the widow cast into the treasury, it was a trifling gift, was it not? But, Jesus talks about it. And the love that prompted that gift of two mites transformed it into an inexhaustible fountain of gold. How many of you have at some point had a child gather little flowering weeds in the garden and bring them to you as a bouquet? And say, Mommy or Grandma, picked you some flowers. The least, most insignificant wildflowers of the field, given in love, are worth more than countless bouquets of roses given with the wrong motives. Love is something you and I need to possess, but how do we come to possess it? At the end of what rainbow do we find this pot of gold called love? Jesus doesn't leave us in doubt as to the answer to that question. He tells us, love is the effect of a certain cause. Love is the stream that flows from a certain fountain. And Jesus tells us in this little story that he tells to Simon, Love is born of forgiveness. Love is the heart's natural response to the forgiving love of God. What does the Bible say? We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. And the measure of our love is the measure of our sense of forgiveness. Jesus tells Simon the story and he says, Simon, which one of those debtors is going to love him the most? And Simon gives him the right answer. He said, well, the one to whom he forgave the most. 
And that's natural. And it's true. Only on the assumption that both debtors are possessed of an equal sensitivity. And that's not always the way it is. There are some people that any sort of debt weighs heavily on them. There are people that lay awake at night if they can't make their and meet their obligations. Because for them, a promise made is a debt unpaid. And that unpaid debt gives them no rest. And then there are others to whom debt is no burden. There are those that their only worry about debt is how can I make it larger? It was Thackeray who said this, Nobody spends money quite so readily as those who are hopelessly and comfortably in debt. And there are even those, and we see them around us on a daily basis, that think the world owes them a living. And society for them is nothing more than a grab bag where they have a right to grab everything they can. And that's a group that seems to be growing. But you see, to forgive someone of a debt of which they are not conscious, or to forgive someone of a debt that they have no intention of paying, is not regarded by that person as any great favor. Simon the Pharisee was in that position. Simon felt he owed nothing to God, and Simon felt he owed nothing to man. So quite naturally, for Simon the Pharisee, the offer of forgiveness left him completely cold. He feels no more need to be forgiven by God than God needs to be forgiven by him. To think of someone like that as loving God. To think of someone who feels they are not in need of forgiveness that they have arrived, to think of that kind of person as loving God is to think of an impossibility. Just as it is impossible for the unforgiven to love God, it's also impossible for the forgiven to fail to love God. Love follows forgiveness as naturally as night follows day. Remember the woman in our story? One day she saw a crowd in the street. And this woman drew near to the crowd. Perhaps not so much to hear the one who was speaking as to perhaps to ply her filthy trade. But that particular day, the speaker was Jesus. And she was caught under the spell of the Son of God. And against the white background of the stainless personality of Jesus Christ, she caught a vision of her own moral ugliness. And the vision of the spiritual beauty of Jesus Christ brought to her a vision of her own possibilities. She saw herself not just for what she was. She saw herself for what 
she could become. When this woman hears Jesus say, Thy sins, which are many, are forgiven, what did she know? She knew herself loved and trusted. And greatly forgiven, she greatly loved. Both of these were in debt. Simon the Pharisee was in debt and this woman was in debt. Both of them were in debt. Guess what? So are we. There's no difference. Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, we're not all equally in debt. That fact is undeniably true. One of these was ten times as guilty as the other. That's the motive behind Jesus' little story there. Which one had the greater guilt? Was it Simon the Pharisee or was it the woman? Scripture doesn't tell us. This outcast woman of the street, was she the one with the greater guilt? Simon, this upright Pharisee, was he the one with the greater guilt? The answer to the question is known only to God. Most times when you hear people discuss this story, they will assign the greater guilt to the woman. You know, I like to be different, don't I? I tend to believe, and I am of the opinion, that the Pharisee, Simon, is the one that owed the larger debt. It's true that he was decent. But he was not only decent, he was hard and cold and harsh. And he was full of pride and he was full of spiritual snobbery. And if anything rings clear out of the New Testament, Jesus seems to look with much harsher eyes on sins of disposition than Jesus does sins of passion. But whatever the degree of guilt, both were guilty. And so are we. This book, the Bible, is written upon the assumption that we're guilty. And I'm aware of something. In the 21st century, this is a concept that's a bit out of date. Because it doesn't really fit in with our 21st century mentality. People in our day and time can't really get too disturbed about this idea or this matter of sin. Because you turn on the news reports, you look around us, you look at our society, and we've lost our moral compass. We've lost our moral sensitivity. To a great extent, we've thrown away our standards. And for many people in our world today, nothing is sinful, nothing is wrong. And even assuming that the base nature of our conduct might exist. We're not to blame for what we do. It's caused by our environment. Or it's caused perhaps due to heredity. But it's not my fault. It's kind of like old King Saul. I have sinned, but I have several excellent excuses. There are very few people in our world today that say with any degree of conviction, 
I have sinned. But if Paul's declaration that all have sinned leaves us untouched, there are still those that give assent to the fact that we've come short of the glory of God. I actually think that many people in our world today are conscious of their failure to arrive. I think there are a great many people who have longingly looked to the heights, but they've never ascended those heights. I think there are many of us that are really not doing the splendid things for God that we once hoped to do. If we're honest, all of us who are serious-minded have to realize that we're not doing as much for the Lord and we're not doing as much for the church as we ought to do. But the sad thing is, in our day and time, our positive wrongdoing often leaves us with no sense of shame. But what we need to do is Sometimes we need to come to the realization that what we do for the Lord oftentimes is only a fraction of what it could be. In our story, both of these, Simon and the sinful woman, were in debt. They were both unable to pay. They were paupers. They were equally penniless. They were bankrupt. But when they could not pay, the debt was forgiven. It was canceled. Forgiveness is more than giving up the right to punishment. Forgiveness is restoring one to a right relationship. When we give our lives to Christ, God forgives our transgressions. Are there changes you need to be made in your life this morning? Things you need to do to restore yourself to a right relationship with God? Whether it's in simple trusting faith to come and put the Lord on in baptism or whether it's to come back and say, Father, help me be better. If there are needs in your life we can help you with, this is your opportunity to let that be made known as together we stand and while we sing.